This interview is really special to me. It's with my grandfather. I recorded four hours of audio with my grandpa, and the final piece you are about to hear is an hour. So to any family or friends that are listening to this, there was a lot I had to rearrange and cut out. Assume any error or omission in the narrative is because of my editing and not Frank's storytelling. There were a lot of stories that were cut for time. As far as getting settled at the uh, firm that I was working, the uh, group of people that were there, all of whom, along with me, got canned. It's interesting that I was able to succeed convincing somebody that I was worth taking a chance on. I ended up getting a job with Beverly Hills city manager named George Morgan. Now, he gave me my exit interview and said, you were in an arena where you were working with a spoon. Everybody else had a mace. I was already losing all these jobs. What the hell was happening to me? I tried and I failed and 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 I I keep trying. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, fails, you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Can you tell me what you had for breakfast this morning? I had cereal, bananas, and uh, pills. I take 10 supplements every day. What supplements are you taking? Vitamins D, vitamin C. This is my grandpa. He's 92, and despite the long list of supplements that accompanies breakfast, he's still got an expansive knowledge of the stock market, most of his hearing, and a full head of hair, which I'm very thankful for as I grow older and hopefully still have my head of hair. But more importantly, he's the other co-founder of my family. Previously, we spoke to my grandma about her childhood, her challenges, and the creation of the Donner clan as I know it today. But of course, she didn't do it alone. And also actually didn't do this podcast alone either. This is a full family affair. My sister, Sophia, is actually doing the editing this episode with me. Uh, Sophia, how was the edit? It was a long edit. It was long. Sophia, do you want to introduce grandpa a little bit more? Sure. Okay. So grandpa daughter, or Frank Donner II, father to 10 and grandfather to double that, has been there for every moment, keeping his kids in line and then taking a step back to watch them continue forward. But that doesn't mean he stopped. As we progressed through his story, I began to realize that you never stop learning, no matter your age. Grandpa Donner has lived through his fair share of setbacks, failures, and heartbreak. But he's a testament to the fact that every setback is a chance to start fresh. Every failure, a place to learn. And every heartbreak is a moment to remember what's important. Every day is a day that we can learn something. So I once again pulled a grandparent back into a quiet room, but unlike last time, Grandpa Donner wasn't just visiting. He and my grandma had recently moved down from Sacramento to a short five-minute drive from my family home. With that in mind, Grandpa Donner welcomed me into his house to tell me about his life up until now, starting, of course, with before he was even born. Well, my dad was born in 1906 in Manistique, Michigan. He was one of 10 children, but there were three that died early on. His mom was named Anna Pergiel. Born in Poland, and she came to the States and married my grandfather, Frank Martin Donner, who was my dad's dad. He cared for cemeteries. When my dad started getting a little bit older, he was out there shoveling manure and dirt and helping with graves and so on when he could, you know. Didn't do a hell of a lot in the way of schooling, but I know that later on he attended correspondence schools to become an engineer, plant engineer. That was part of his growing up. In his family, there were four girls and three boys. They moved to Chicago. 
but um, I think he was not married yet. The story is, and I got this from mom, who got this from my mom, was that my mom was sitting on a toilet seat in an apartment in the bathroom, primping up, you know, maybe getting ready to go out, but she was clothed. And my dad was, I guess, was over there visiting. And when he walked in, you know, that's where everybody was at. My dad was smitten with my mom. And then uh, dating and so on pursued after that. They got married in November of November 16th, 1929. And um, I was born in October. So the nine months. Yeah. <laughs> right away. <laughs> what were some of your earliest memories? My dad worked for A.B. Dick company, which is the company that he worked for for 43 years. Wow. My dad, I think, started out in the lowest position you could think of us, which would be a boilerman. Started out shoveling coal into uh, boilers to keep the um, building warm on Jackson Boulevard for A.B. Dick, where they had a high rise. That's a really physical job. Do you know if he liked it? <laughs> I never heard and I never asked. I'm, so I don't know. My suspicions would be it was something that he endured. My thought is that, you know, I'm going to get past this to something else. And he stayed with the company. So 43 years. What do you remember about your mom? A loving mother and a caring one. In grammar school, I played hooky once, riding around on a bicycle with another cl classmate, yeah. a guy by the name of Cecil Smith. And, and interestingly enough, we rode around right close to the school. <laughs> and so my mom was called by the principal, and my mom is walking down to the school and spots me riding around by the school. I guess I got pretty much reprimanded, and you know, I don't know whether I got pulled by the ear, but you know, something to the extent that I had, I had to go back to school. Did he play hooky often? No, that was the only only time that I think I ever did that. Really? Yeah, because I think if my mom told my dad, my dad would kind of tan my rear end. He could lose his temper and get pissed off, you know, and I can remember going round and round the basement with my dad kind of chasing me with a cat of nine tails. Really? <laughs> I've had some I've had some punishment. Were you scared of him growing up? No. No. Never. I love my dad immensely. It's just the, just the times and just maybe how he was raised. And it, that's how he used it on me. Maybe that's how I used it on, on, my, on my kids, but not with a cat of nine tails. But anyhow, no, I love my dad immensely. Still do. What do you love most about him? Strong, personal man. You know, I think he cared for us, even though we had, you know, the differences, like I said, are like an argument. My dad loved my mom immensely as well. You know, to stay married for 70 years, I think you got to have devotion and dedication. Yeah, it's a lot of dedication. I remember that my dad at one point kind of thought maybe he'd like to go into business for himself. The entrepreneurial Donner streak runs deep. And I think maybe what spurred him to do that is that his older brother had done that. His younger brother had done it as well and did it with a success. He owned a store in Woodstock, Illinois, concessionary store, but he also had an archery program, you know, that he had in the basement in the store in Woodstock. And then he ended up making a pretty decent living in that. My dad thought that he'd want to do something similar. My mom said, uh-uh. Really? Why? His older brother was a failure. Hmm. The stories that I heard was that his wife would come into the till and take money out of the till. And I don't know whether Harry was able to keep track of all of that. That being said, when he'd come to the end of the day to, you know, tally up profits and intake or whatever, things didn't, didn't add uh, up. And so within a year's time, he had a bailout. Wow. And that's all I know. My mom and dad talked about it, and I think my mom, you know, prevailed from the standpoint of, I don't know that that would be the best thing to do. You've got responsibilities. We've got payments to make. Let's not risk it. And so my dad ended up staying at, like I say, at A.B. Dick Company and then becoming the plant engineer. You know, they weren't making a fortune, but 
anything that we could bring in in the way of income would certainly help buying our own clothes, you know, so later on when we got out of grammar school and we were into already high school, summer months we would go caddying and we would make money on the golf course. And interestingly enough, both my brother and I worked together at the golf course. What was the dynamic when you guys were like doing this and also at home? <laughs> Do you guys get along well? For the most part, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes a little, how would you say, a little rivalry. Rivalry? Yeah, if you could call it rivalry. Yeah. Just that you do this, you know, and I'll do that. I get the, maybe the easier job. Did you guys like like compete in like wrestling and running and all that kind of stuff too? And no, swimming? no, because, you know, in grammar school, we never did have anything like that other than maybe running from some of the guys that we might have to have to fight. We had a few guys that were pretty, pretty toughies, you know, some some guys that, you know, like to pick fights. Yeah. Like were they like tough guys? Yeah, some of them were. He says, no, you're going to tell me something today, tough guy. Really? Well, because this is Chicago, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I or Gene ever ended up having to evade that. What we did was just run home as fast as we could to get home. He was a good man. When I was going to St. Gertrude School, there were a couple of nuns that were quite good to me, if you want to put it that way. The main one was a Sister Tree scene. She was fostering a vocation in me, and she thought that I would be somebody who could make a good priest. We had people from East Troy, Wisconsin, coming to different schools to recruit people to attend the school to eventually become a missionary. When I started, that was 1944, right out of grammar school. Was your vocation still strong as you went through? Uh, yeah, I made all four years. I finished my high school, and the slogan that we used to hear was, you know, many are called, but few are chosen. So we started out with 30 in the, in the first year, uh, 1944, in my class, and we graduated in 1948 with 10. Wow. So 20 dropped out. Why? They just felt that it, that it wasn't their kind of life and style. Why did you feel at the time that it was your life and style? I thought I had a commitment to God and to, um, you know, wanting to be a priest and to be a missionary. So when did that change? Like, when did you start thinking that you wanted something different for your future? You know, I don't know that I gave it really that much thought other than that just to continue the progress. The next step was to go into another trial period, what we called novitiate. That almost becomes a blank for me. I spent two years. The only thing I can tell you and I can remember is that I did two different retreats, each retreat being as long as 30 days in silence, during which time I did a lot of thinking about, is this my life? My biggest question was, am I cheating God when I said I would decide to become a priest and now I'm not going to? I moved on to the next step, still not answering my question, do I or should I or, or should I not? I didn't want to face up to it. I didn't want to really make the decision. I didn't want to proselytize people. I didn't want to be somebody to go to the different foreign lands and try learning some of the languages. I didn't think that I wanted to move out of my out of this country. I didn't think that was me. Why not? I was afraid. I guess I was afraid. It seems like there was this moment that you're looking over the edge and you're like, oh, I don't really want to jump, you know? <laughs> and that's like, that's a scary jump to make to go to Africa, to go to China, to, to all these different countries. What, what was the feeling that you were feeling? Trepidation. A little afraid of doing that. You know, a little wondering how my mom and dad are going to take it. But just the summer before turning 21, I began telling them, mom and dad, I don't think this is my life. I'm quitting and I'm leaving When did you meet Grandma? February of 52. I was uh, standing in a area way in, in DePaul University. 
and she says that I was surrounded by a bevy of girls. I don't know whether I was or not, but <laughs> she said to a friend of hers, I know that fellow, and then came over and introduced herself. I was going out with a, a girl at that time by the name of Virginia Geimer, and um, all that stopped when I met Grandma. <laughs> What did you do? Well, uh, I think I asked her for a, a date, you know, and asked her for her phone number yeah. and um, began courting her. And that was the that was the end of it. But then what? It's like the Korean War, right? My fellow citizens, I want to talk to you about Korea and about why we are there and what our objectives are. It is your liberty and mine which is involved. I'm in school, and for whatever reason, I, I'm not knuckling down, not studying well. My classwork was not the greatest, and so my grades weren't the greatest as well. So that made me eligible for the draft. I got a card, you know, or, or something in the mail saying that you have to show up for the draft and be evaluated or whatever. Do you remember what you what you felt when you got that letter? Where you're like, oh, sh <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't really too happy. <laughs> I can't imagine. There, there wasn't anything that I could do anymore because I couldn't avoid it. It was a duty that you had to perform for the uh, country. Right. And um, since I was able, I got to go do it. And at one point, I, I tried for OCS, Officers Candidate School, and passed the test. So I was selected to go to Fort Belvoir for engineering school. And I, I was shooting for a, a, you know, gold bar, a second lieutenant. In the upshot, I had two TAC officers convinced that I needed additional training. I accepted that position at first and then subsequently said, hell no, I don't want to do that. I was just interested more in getting the gold bar as opposed to whatever else was going to follow on. Right, that you just part. wanted the status. Correct. You, you got that right. <laughs> that being said, they were going to court-martial me for that. Because you had already agreed. Yes. But then they scotched that. So I ended up being shipped out of Fort Belvoir and back to an ACAC battery, which was uh, my initial assignment, mm -hmm. artillery, at Media, Pennsylvania. And I finished out my career there. I wrote to Grandma uh, pretty much regularly. I know I proposed and they had given her an engagement ring. I don't know how many letters I sent, but she saved them all. And while I was at Fort Belvoir, Grandma came out and visited me, and she flew out. We had a day or two together, at the end of which she gave back the ring to me, and she said, I'm not sure that I want to marry you. She cried all the way back home on the plane. Really? <laughs> just, you know, things that were running through our minds, I guess, that just caused us the doubts and, and, and ideas that maybe we should wait a little bit longer. Yeah. What were the doubts back then? I didn't have any. You didn't have any? No. Yeah. Grandma did. Yeah. I wanted to marry Grandma. Yeah. But Grandma said, I'm, I'm not sure. One of the uh, <laughs> lower rank, you know, like a sergeant, he owned a uh, Mercury convertible. We had some leave time that we were going to use, so two fellas and I convinced them to give us the Mercury convertible for three days, which we drove back to Illinois. I came back to visit Dorothy and reestablished our relationship. What did you say to win her back? Well, I just said, I, <laughs> I want to marry you. <laughs> I came and visited her I, and, you know, spent time with her and her family, her mom and dad in, in their, in the house. And I don't know what, I don't know what else I said. Why were you so sure? I don't know. I, I, I just knew that this was the lady that I wanted to marry and there was nobody else that I was interested in. I think there was a yearning in my heart that um, Dorothy Canabay was the lady I wanted to marry and uh, spend the rest of my life with.
And that's what happened. But, you know, it took a little extra work at it. You know, hey, yeah, all, all good things do. <laughs> a little follow-up. Follow and uh, things worked out okay. And I, I ushered out and got released from the military at uh, Fort Meade, Maryland. So now you are once again a civilian. I'm back to being a civilian. I just mustered out. And so when is the wedding? We ended up picking November. For whatever reason, I wanted to get married in the same month that my folks married. We didn't want to wait much longer than what it would be already been waiting. Grandma's uh, mom and dad agreed to uh, the Fine Arts Club, and uh, it was a nice club. I furnished the liquor, and Grandma's parents did uh, foodstuffs. Yeah. I think we probably had about 150 to 200 people coming. 200 people? Yeah, so there, were, there was a sizable group of people. Wow. A lot of fun. We had a good time. We had a good meal. And Grandma and I didn't stay too long. Grandma and I snuck off, changed clothes, and walked into the Evanston Hotel. And the lobby was loaded. And as Grandma and I walked in, everybody said, look at the newlyweds. <laughs> I don't know how they could tell that we were newlyweds, but I blushed from head to toe. <laughs> what did it feel like to be married? <laughs> Ecstatic. <laughs> When you got married, did you know what kind of life you guys wanted to have together? Best I could tell you is we could have a good life. And grandma and grandpa were Catholics during the 50s. So first comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes, well, you'll see. Grandma and I had gone to um, pre-Cana conferences to do some preparation regarding marriage. It was the Catholic slant. So what do you do when you first get married? What do you do when the first child comes? So did they cover everything? Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Children, sex. They would cover sex too? Oh, yeah. One of the things that we never did was we never practiced celibacy in a sense. Yeah. Uh, never used condoms. Right. Uh, at one point, you know, when we were, when the family was coming, my dad said to me, do you know what's causing this? <laughs> <laughs> Like, do you know what's causing the children? Correct. <laughs> you know, I loved every one of my kids as they came. They were a bundle of joy. Did you feel ready? <laughs> Not exactly. And, you know, as if I think about it now and you ask me that question, all the responsibility dropped on mom, on grandma, because she was there home while I was working. You know, so either that or going to school. So unfair in a way. I don't think we were ready. Were you in the delivery room when Barbara was born? Not allowed. At not that allowed? Time. No, not at, really? not at that time. Yeah. I was not in, in the delivery room for any one of the kids. Really? Yeah. That wasn't allowed back then. From what I can remember, I don't know that I ever asked, but it's a different story today, I guess. I was there at, at Kathy's delivery of Max. It's quite an affair to watch. Kind of breathtaking in a way. What were the first moments of fatherhood like for you? Like what, like what do you remember? What a pleasure it was to see a daughter come toward me when I would come home from work. I was working at United Parcel Service in downtown Chicago. It was exciting to have my wife, Dorothy, and my firstborn, Barbara, come meet me and greet me and then um, walk me home and then sit down and have supper and have a chance to talk to each other. I was proud, you know, that I had these children and that my wife was able to take care of them. It's something of an accomplishment in a sense. I have a, uh, a legacy. Did you feel that your main role is just to provide? Or did you also feel like there were values that you felt personally you needed to instill in your children as well? I'm going to admit to something and say that I didn't even think about that. And that's probably where I'm remiss. I think we took it a day at a time and put one foot in front of the other. Some of my tactics relative to how I reprimanded were not the most beneficial. For example, you know, I forget what the incident was, but 
all 10 kids lined up downstairs in, in Downers Grove. They did something, and I wasn't happy about it. And so I lined them all up and gave them a swat on the rear end with a little bit of a strap. Was that the best thing to do, as I think about? Not probably not. Do I regret it? I do. Can't change it. We're also doing the best that you knew how. Nonetheless, they've grown up. Some have some memories about it. Some don't. For the most part, I think all the kids say that, you know, we fostered love. Both mom and me or grandma and me. And I tried to love my kids as much as I could. Well, think about how you think about your dad. Each generation learns a little bit more. Like my mom would spank me and stuff when I was a kid, but I don't think my dad ever really hit me or anything. He would get mad, get angry, reprimand me. But I think each, you know, each generation learns from their parents. Yeah. And it sounds like when you describe how things went with your dad versus how you handled things with your children, it seems like it was a, a toned down version of what you experienced. Not as severe, probably, as what my dad administered to Gene and me. But like I told you, you know, it didn't, didn't change my love for him at one iota. Maybe it's what I needed. I don't know. <laughs> I can remember an incident where, you know, I pretty much upset the, the two of them, my mom and dad. And I think it was when I was caddying and it was in the summer months. I didn't notify them that I was going to be coming home late. And when I walked into the door, I got a crack in the jaw. You know, kind of knocked me on my keister. And my dad was angry because what I did was I upset my mom and made her totally worried. Did I deserve that? Probably not. But it didn't make me say I hated my dad. I never said that. Never would. There are so many things that our parents do that we, in retrospect, might not agree with, but... I know my dad loves you. I love my dad. And I kind of like how my life turned out. And so it's like, so you're thankful for all of it, even the stuff that was hard. Oh, absolutely. You know, he read to you in the womb. He read to you subsequently and to your sister. Those are things that I didn't do. I was always busy. You know, was I really busy? Good question. You know, because I was guilty of coming home late for supper. I thought I had things to do at work and that that was more important than, you know, but I should have said my family's just as important, if not more so than what I'm doing. If I can't handle what I'm doing, you know, in the time allotted me, then something's wrong. When do you feel like things got more difficult to balance? I'll give you an incident. I can remember when grandma and I were driving, we had all the kids in the car. Everybody was arguing. And there were some arguments going on between Kat and Rick, and they're always bickering and always bickering. I got to a point where I, I couldn't handle that. I would have smacked somebody. But Grandma said, that ain't the way to handle that. I got out of the car. I decided I'd walk home. I don't know how far away I was from home, but it was probably a pretty good mile. And then Grandma, you know, took off and drove drove home because I wouldn't get back in the car. I was going through some job losses and some job failures and some job openings, and I don't know what the heck was happening to me, you know. Uh, and I just couldn't figure it out. All the kids were saying, "Don't go." Grandma's telling me, "Don't go." Yet I walked out. I went to my office, stayed there for a night and a day. On the other hand, maybe I avoided some physical action with the kids. I don't know what kind of impacts that had on, on the kids. They don't say anything about it. I don't know whether they remember it. It's hard to know what kind of impact these moments have on your children, especially when you don't have the kind of relationship where there's an open dialogue, where how you feel matters. And also, these moments affect each kid differently. And each kid really was different with their own quirks and personalities. Were there cliques? Who was hanging out with who? And what were the personalities? Of all of the kids, Mary Jo had the most common sense and, you know, would prevail as the kind of peacekeeper. Rick and Kat always had their continued arguments. 
you touching me, get away from me, you know. <laughs> little things that were just crazy that would end up kind of getting me stressed out a little bit. For whatever reason, Kat always felt that she was picked on by the family. Kat was a little bit chubby, cute little girl, but did things, you know, her, her own way. Sometimes that irritated the rest of the guys, and so they were always kind of taunting Kat. It was just a personality thing and the way people looked at her. Who got up to the most trouble? Paul threw a pie at a guy that was Wait, driving Paul a... Paul threw a pie at someone? In an open convertible, yeah. <laughs> One of the other kids was there, came running home saying, hey, dad, you know, my mom, Paul's getting beaten up. And I said, that ain't going to happen. And so all the rest of the kids and I went down to the pond, at which point all the kids that were kind of ganging up and on Paul said, well, here comes the Donner family. We better scatter, <laughs> which they did. We didn't threaten anybody other than the numbers, by numbers. The sheer numbers. <laughs> the whole army, got a whole Correct. platoon coming at you. But the platoon would soon be stationed far away from Downers Grove, Illinois, because Frank would get a job opportunity in California with a moving company called Beacons. Tell me a little bit about those first few months in California. <laughs> Took us a week to get uh, across uh, the, the states from Illinois to California. And there was an interesting incident that occurred when we were somewhere in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Grandma had set up a place where we could stay. Uh, we were all in one room, and so there were a dozen of us. All in one room? Yes. And, Twelve? And, <laughs> correct. At one point, uh, the people, I guess, who were next door kind of pounded on the wall, indicating we were making too much noise. And Grandma said, okay, guys, everybody up against the wall. Two times 12, 24 fists on the wall. The uh, people who, who started out decided to stay quiet. <laughs> There's a whole army against the wall. That's correct. <laughs> So once you reach California, what do you think? The first impression was that we had nothing but rain for about, to me, it seemed like it was almost two weeks. Totally depressing. And as far as getting settled at the uh, firm that I was working, um, we made, you know, good, pretty good friendships, all of whom, along with me, got canned. What was that like to see everyone <laughs> kind of, yeah. You know, losing a job, you know, wondering what the hell's going on and why. What I figured is that I just better find another job. How old were you at that point now? 43, 45 years old. Are, are there dreams of like what you want to do next? No. I didn't strategize or plan or look at who I am and what I could do or not do. I ran by the day. Who do you think you were, you know, at 45? A failure. I was already losing all these jobs. What the hell was happening to me? I started out with uh, Marriott Hot Shops. You're fired. Then went down to Mortel. You're fired. And back to Marriott Hot Shops. You're fired. Did some work with a guy named Jan Slort, which didn't work out too well. You're fired. And then I ended up getting a job with personnel director with Beverly Hills. And it's interesting that I was able to succeed convincing somebody that I was worth taking a chance on. You're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. I worked for a city manager named George Morgan. Now he gave me my exit interview and said, you were in an arena where you were working with a spoon. Everybody else had a mace. You're fine. I wasn't up to the battle in terms of what I was working with in terms of other department heads. Looking back, like, do you have any idea? Did you know, like, why this was happening? Yeah, lack of confidence in myself. I think that's the main thing. I always had a concern about whether I was as smart as other people. Going back to high school, I strived to be as intelligent as I could possibly be, using my brain to memorize and remember things that I learned during the day. I don't think my intelligence level was as high as some of the other kids, but I competed with them. 
I left the seminary, went to DePaul, had a bum time in DePaul, left DePaul University, went to the service, then came back, struggled for the next dozen years after Grandma and I got married to finally get a degree. And it took me, like I say, a dozen years to do that. I struggled to get a, a law background, but didn't spend the time and effort that I should have, and therefore bombed out of that. And I wondered to myself, why the hell couldn't I be a hell of a lot better? What did, what did I do? I didn't concentrate enough. So, you know, if I look all along my whole career, a start and a failure, a start and a failure, and a start and a failure. And I should have gone three more steps further and I'd have been a hell of a lot better prepared than what I was. Did you feel just like a lack of stability and confidence everywhere? Or, or were there some places where it's like, okay, like I think I... I was confident. I'm Frank Donner and I could do anything I want and I t I'll try. Maybe as an example, when I went into, went into some of the personnel activities that I joined, I was a little reluctant to get on the phone and call. Hell, I, I was always scared of what the hell the guy was going to think of me on the other end of the, the line. He couldn't see me, so why would I worry? Nonetheless, I did, but I got over that, you know, so I talked very glibly today to many people. I tried and I failed, and 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 I keep trying. There were a lot of changes with Frank's professional career, but Frank was rolling with the punches. And just as he was getting comfortable being a father and a working man, the kids started moving out. I want to talk about like how you felt as your kids started to move out of the house and if there was any resistance as they moved. The first one I think that really moved out of the house was Rick. I questioned that relative to was he prepared to do that? He hadn't dated any more than just one lady, and that was Vivian. I said, broaden your horizons a little bit. Make sure that you are making the right choice. The next one to move to marriage was Mary Jo. One day, John came and said, I'd like to marry your daughter. She was his student in high school. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah in Alameda. Yeah. So he was teaching at Alameda, and somewhere along the line, they became enamored with each other, and the upshot is that they got married. The union was a good union. It still is. When did my dad move out? Now, that was a problem because okay. I'm not sure why. And your dad was pretty forceful with me. I'm not sure why I was so reluctant about that. He was certainly old enough, making money. But I think he was in college already. He wanted to move with Eric Cooper, and I think he and Eric were classmates at, at uh, CSUN. He used some choice words with me. Really? How did it <laughs> unfold? What happened? Well, we were living in Northridge, and we were on the steps of, uh, of the house in Northridge. And I was telling Frank, you're not going to go. And Frank said, don't fuck with me, otherwise I'll bust your head. It was just, just a matter of moving out, and maybe I was not willing to lose my family moving out. And he, he wrote a note to me later on, which I kept on my dresser, telling me that he loved me. And uh, I remember that I kept it on my dresser for years. Why do you think he wanted to leave? Everybody flies the coop. It was his time. Why should I prevent it? It would have been a lot better if we sat down and talked about it and discussed it, as opposed to fighting about it, which was what... My approach was, mine was more of a confrontational approach, which didn't sit well with Frank. Do you think the kids felt like they could have that non-confrontational, just like open conversation with you about the things they wanted when they were growing up? No. Why not? I didn't brook that in a sense. And that's where my mistake was. I was more a martinet and I ruled by authority as opposed to love and understanding. While I loved my kids and I, I did show that, you know, in different ways, probably not enough in the ways that they could come talk to me, you know, like a confidant, not like with their mom. Why do you feel like you had to rule with such like absolute authority? A little difficult to, you know, keep 
10 people in line, my thought was easier to rule by fear, not a good tactic. Emotion overruled rationality. So again, while my children show me a lot of respect and love, sometimes I don't think I deserve it. Why don't you think you deserve it? Because of how I acted or how I handled them. Understanding should have been the the fundamental underlying premise here on everything. And did I give them a chance to tell me anything? Probably not. So it was act and react instead of being patient and waiting and listening. When did you feel like you started to stop and listen more? (laughs) My old age. When all the kids were gone and now I had the chance to talk to each one individually by phone or, you know, by a visit. There was a dream that I did have, if you want to call it a dream, and that was that my family would live in a compound like Dallas where we had a big operation and we had other satellite operations that belonged to the different families that had had come about because of marriage and we would live it all in that same area, Mm. pie in the sky. Did you ever tell your kids about that? Oh, I've mentioned it once or twice. How did the house change as there were less and less kids there? Well, they had more room. (laughs) (laughs) Joey lived out in in Simi Valley, Joey and John. Dave's got to been married. Paul was married. Kathy was living up in Nevada with my brother. We moved in 1986 from Northridge to Orangevale. I think the only one that was with us then was Nina. Nina was a uh, kind of a lost soul for a while. Nina was working as a waitress, you know, for, for quite some time. Because she wanted to be independent, she lived with Rick and Vivian for a while. But Nina was not doing as well as she should have been and was not paying rent. And so Rick finally got to the point where he said, you've got to do something or otherwise you're out. And I guess he, she ended up leaving. All I remember in her finally getting stabilized was that she had gone to a beauty school and that was up in Northridge and that grandma had gone to attend her graduation and that's what she's been doing since. And I guess what she was doing was trying to just get her act together and do the best she could. Nina had her challenges. However, she eventually was able to be fully independent. The kids had moved out. But the thing about being a parent is it doesn't stop when the kids move out. It just changes. When one of your children needs your help, you try to help. And grandpa was about to be called on once again. I was curious if you could talk about like how Paul's relationship with his kids and his first partner, like how how did that unfold? Paul was... um working as a laborer in a uh, furniture moving company and he had gone out with some some of his friends and that somewhere along the line got introduced a couple of different girls one was stephanie wing which was a bad influence they got involved in some problems mainly stealing something to do with skis ended up he was almost going into prison really but i think we were able to get that eradicated were you mad yeah not too happy to have a have a gal, you know, kind of lead your son by the nose and get involved into something. Anyhow, that stopped, but he ended up meeting um, Christy. Nice-looking young lady as well at the outset. Seemed to come from a decent family. But somewhere along the line, Christy succumbed to drugs. How? I don't know. Have no idea. While Christy was battling with drug addiction, she fell pregnant with Jason and later Sean. Uh, Jason kind of evidenced some idea of having been affected by the drugs that were in Christy's body. Finally, Christy and Paul separated. Paul then married Tamson Strong. Jason is already now more like a four and five. They're living in Pasadena. 
he's demonstrating some problems. And Paul and his wife, Tamson, who was not too keen on children, decided that he needed to be placed somewhere and they put him in an institution. What did you think about that? Well, I didn't think that it was a good thing and I didn't, I wasn't happy about it, but you know, it's not my life, not my child. Grandma and I went there and visited him. We couldn't get him out. Paul and Christy, they had approached us and asked, would we be willing to take Jason and help rear him? That was like at age 10. Grandma and I talked about it and I said, we'll give it a chance. What was the conversation with you and grandma like? Is it something that we want to do and can we handle it? You know, at our age, what are we going to be encountering? A 10-year-old kid that's going to come and live in a house where, you know, he's living with 60-year-old adults. Not the greatest of things, but, you know, we thought if we could give him a chance to succeed and get okay, we would do that. How did you approach parenting Jason? Not too easily. I had my, my, my stressful moments where I would have probably beat him to death because he would do what he would want to do. For example, while he was living with us, he went to a shoe store and stole a pair of shoes, but claimed that he bought them. So grandma's asking, well, how did you pay for them? We take them back and the woman says, I don't want you in this store anymore. We're lucky that he gets off scot-free and that the woman doesn't prosecute him there were some other incidents that occurred. He was going to a school that was set up for attention deficit hyperactive kids, which is what he exhibited. In school, he didn't do too badly, but he had a teacher kind of indicated that pretty much what you had to do with this kid was nail his shoes to the floor in order to keep him in one place. Over the two-year period, there's just, just different things that occurred, one of them being that he was back to stealing. And what he stole was a package of gum, beef jerky, and some condoms, walking out of CVS and then got caught. CVS called us. He claimed that he was underage, gave his age as a little under 12, so that he wouldn't hopefully be prosecuted. But that, that didn't work too well because we ended up having to pay a $150 fine. And at some point, while he was with us, we bought him a bike, and I said, that's going to pay for your fine because I'm not going to pay for that. So we sold his bike and got the money to take care of that. All these little things were just building up to just one big upheaval. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? I was trying to get him to do something, and he was in the bathroom hanging on to one of our towel racks, and just I was trying to move him away from that physically. And he was hanging onto the rack, and we ended up pulling the rack out of the wall. I had to grab a hold of him because he wouldn't wouldn't move to where I wanted him to go, and I didn't want to strike him. You know, I I knew enough that that wasn't going to work too well, and I think he was smart enough to say that I was you know doing something to him. I think that was probably where we finally ended up saying we can't handle him; he's too much for us. How did that feel to say? A relief because you know it's just a hell of a lot of work where did he go when we called david david was a social worker that was helping with jason he ended up talking to christy again and she was willing to take him back for a while and so he went back to christy at some point christy succumbed to overdose of drugs i think she was about 45 years old when that happened so After that, like, when, when do you next remember caring about Sean and Jason? Somehow they ended up down in Arizona. I know we were giving money to these guys, and now they're at, a, at an older age, you know, and they're living like in a halfway house, so they've gone well beyond the age of 18. Over the years, we sent them money to help move from one place to another, bus fare, this and that. I think we spent a considerable sum of money just helping them out. And then we go to prison, right? He did. He did. He spent time up in Delano. Jason, not so much Sean, was up and down. When he was out of prison, he was doing all the wrong things. When he's in prison, he um, met God and he was sorry for everything and uh, I need your help and can you send me money and I need 
this and I need that. Once he got out of prison for whatever time he spent there, he just went back to the same thing that he did to get him into prison. How do you feel about that? Like, Tired of doing the same damn thing over and over. How do you think Paul felt about it? Oh, I'm sure he felt badly about it. You know, I think he tried uh, his best to do whatever he could for both Jason and Sean. Um, I remember we were traveling in the automobile and we were going out to Ventura to the halfway house where Jason was staying at the time after having gotten out of prison. Paul had heard something about the Delaney house up in San Francisco. I guess it would have cost a few bucks and he was willing to make the payment, you know, in terms of having Jason go there. And Jason said he would and then dumped it decided not to. He's in prison now. Oh, really? I don't know. Oh, yes. From what I understand, possession of a firearm, possession of drugs, and operating a vehicle under some sort of condition that he shouldn't have been operating a vehicle. In addition to that, he's fathered a child, and the woman that he has married, her name is Rebecca, had the child in prison herself. Jason has continued to call me and I've, I don't answer. I, I just don't answer anymore. My last message to him was, you have gotten yourself into this predicament. You dig yourself out. I can't help anymore. It's Paul's kids. Do I feel badly about it? Do I think about it? I do, but I can't do anything. They didn't have a good start. They were born under some bad circumstances because they were affected by drugs. You, you just, just might say they didn't have a, a fair chance. Everything with Jason was incredibly hard on the family and my grandpa. I'm sure it was hard on Paul too. And unfortunately, things would get harder for Paul. So maybe around 2006 is when he's called. He was on a trip and he had discovered something under his arm that he was had some concern about. So he went to see the doctor and I think subsequently learned that his body was riddled with cancer. And I think the, the initial diagnosis was melanoma. When things turned to the worst, that's when he ended up in hospice in Arizona. I think it was probably... Uh, Claudine that found the location, Claudine and Mike, and then said this would probably be a pretty good place, you know, to get care, which he did, but ended up dying. We didn't really talk that much. He talked with Rick and spent a lot more time with Rick, and Rick ended up staying with him when he died. I can't remember what he said relative to facing death and how he felt. I left it to his brother, his oldest brother. I think about that um, infrequently and wondered why I didn't spend more time with him and could I have given him any more encouragement or could I pray with him? How did you feel after he passed away? A loss. You know, it's tough enough to have a parent die, but to have one of your children die not an easy thing. You know, I'm dad and he's son. I just lost a son that's lost one of our children. And I hope he's in heaven. Is there anything like you wish you would have done differently? Yeah, I probably should have spent the last hours with him at his death. That probably would have been a better thing to do than not. Rick had called at 3.30 in the morning to tell us that Paul had died. Date was the February 17th, so. Paul made his way through the world as best he could, did the best he could, you know, for his family, did the best he could for the two sons that he had who had problems, couldn't do any more than what he did. Frank had just lost a son. Something no parent should be forced to bear. Yet, 
While he undoubtedly grieved Paul's death and the loss of the years he should have had with him, I think the fact that he didn't use more of the time he did have was an even harder burden to bear. Frank's struggle to connect with his kids once again led to pain and regret. He felt he couldn't speak to his son in hospice, so he left it to Rick, only realizing after that this wasn't time he could get back. But a decade later, he would have to face it all over again. How has your relationship with the kids changed in terms of how you interacted with Paul versus like how you interacted with Mike? Actually, the situation with Mike was pretty much the same as with Paul. Mike died on the 10th of December. We weren't there. His family was Claude and Alexandra. I prefer to remember Michael as a a strong young man, as a strong fellow. I don't want to remember them succumbing to death earlier than they should have. God has his plans. He used Joey saying, God's hands, God's plans. I'd hoped that Michael would have been a, a possibility. And at one point I said to the family that once he's recovered from his cancer, we'll all go to Hawaii. And I was willing to <laughs> set that up as a program that we would all, you know, grandma and I would pay for that, but that doesn't bring Michael back. It didn't do anything. Anyhow, I don't know what else to say. Having gone through this once before, it may seem like Frank should have known how to handle it. But this isn't something that you can ever get used to or understand. And it's not something a person or a parent should have to face twice. Even so, he tried to do better. Tried to be there more. But just as before, he found it hard to connect. But I think the loss of Mike helped him realize that he doesn't have forever with his children. Not necessarily that his life is short, but that everyone's life is. And in that uncertainty, you need to appreciate the time that you have with the people you love. Appreciation for those you love, incredibly important. And I think that appreciation also aids in something equally important, self-discovery. I think there's a lot of pressure to understand, discover, and know yourself, especially in your 20s. But self-discovery and understanding is a lifelong pursuit. It's something my grandfather is still doing. And I actually want to close out this interview with my dad, my dad recounting a conversation he had with his dad after this interview. I think you interviewed grandpa on a Friday and we had dinner with him on a Sunday and mom asked, oh, Samuel said that, you know, he had the opinion and you said, and grandpa said, yeah, it was really remarkable. I didn't realize, you know, Samuel's a great interviewer and I think we spoke for four hours and I I hope I did a good job and we talked a lot. And then, you know, we were all sitting at the counter and grandma was listening and mom was making dinner and, and he got really emotionally goes, I guess I really don't know who I am. And I said, dad, that's a really beautiful thing to say. He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, well everybody's in discovery. Nobody really knows who they are. It's a tough question. And the fact that you're asking it is quite profound and beautiful at this age. The majority of people on this planet, Samuel, are born asleep, they marry in their sleep, and they die in their sleep. They never wake up to who they are. He's going to be 93, and he's still learning. Like, he's learning Mandarin. He's yeah. keeping up with the stock market. He's, like, ahead yeah. of current events. He's using Siri on his iPhone. Like, he is someone who never <laughs> wants to stop learning and never wants to, you know, stop and reinventing himself and discovering himself. He's like 93, but he still has so much life in him. Can you add that? We look at him and say, you know, even with all the difficulties, we're thankful. Can you imagine if he abandoned us? What would have happened to all of us? Like, what would our lives would have been like? But he stayed the course. He stayed true to his wife, his faith. He wasn't, it didn't say he was perfect, but he's still trying to find his way, his journey. You know, your grandfather, who, you know, raised 10 children, 28 grandchildren, 15 great-grandchildren, you know, he's still a lifelong learner.
This episode was produced by me, Samuel Donner, and edited by my sister, Sophia Donner. And making this with her and my grandpa, it's been an absolute joy. Many of us think we know about our family history, but honestly, I don't know about everyone else, but I really didn't until this interview. I had no idea what the real story was. I only knew bits and pieces of it. And really, this is just from my grandfather's perspective. And so there's so many different perspectives in my family. And the full story is beautiful. My grandfather is a great man. The Donners are a force to be reckoned with, and I'm so glad I have this family. I wouldn't trade them for the world. Thank you.